you would take a Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Philippians, and you're using the the Bible in the pew there, Philippians chapter 1 is on page 980 of that pew Bible. A couple of, while you're turning there, a couple of announcements. One is that next Sunday night we will restart our first Sunday evening prayer meeting. So we will be gathering at 7 p.m. next Sunday evening in here to pray for uh, our ministry, for one another, uh, and also uh, on April the 4th, which is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we will restart uh, Sunday school classes. So not one class in here as we were doing for a while, but classes, plural, as we had been, um, you know, up to about a year ago which was our normal pattern up to then. If you have more questions because, hey, you came uh, since a year from then and there hasn't been so much in the way of Sunday school classes, please contact the church office. We would love to help you find uh, a class for you. Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read the second, the very last phrase in verse 18 all the way through verse 26. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's bow and pray and ask for the Lord's help as we study this. Our Father, you are our creator and sustainer and Savior. And now in these moments we pray that you will be our teacher, that by the work of your Holy Spirit I will be helped in explaining and teaching these things so that we are all impacted by them, changed by them, encouraged by them, corrected by them. And we pray that we will all have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ as a result. In his name we pray. Amen. As you start another week tomorrow, I wonder what's your aim this week? Now, many of you may not be so happy that I would bring up the work of the next week so early. This usually doesn't begin to come to mind until later on Sunday. But still, what is it that you are hoping to accomplish 
this week. As you do your job, as you care for your children, as you exercise, as you meet with friends, as you go to school, what's something that if you get that one thing done, you will be happy with your week? Well, now, in one sense, the answer will vary from person to person. There may be a deadline at work that you want to meet. There may be a certain number of clients that you want to contact or sales that you want to make a paper to finish for school, a certain number of miles to run, though I don't know anything about that. Unless I am being chased, then I, if I am chased, I will run as long as necessary. But you may have a number of goals for this week, and there's nothing wrong with these kinds of goals. Goals like this can help us to stay productive, help us to stay on task. However, if you're a Christian, you have a greater goal. Your goal, my goal, for today, for this week, for any week, for all of life, is to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the goal. Now, what does that mean? Well, this week I listened to a service, the, what is called the Thanksgiving service, thanking God and paying tribute to the life and ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man whom I have greatly respected for a long time. He died 40 years ago tomorrow. will have been the anniversary of his death. And in this service, speaker after speaker talk about his godliness, his influence worldwide, his power in the pulpit, his compassion in counseling, his commitment to the Word. And as I listened to these testimonies, this man who I already respected before I listened to it, my, my view of him got larger as I listened to all of these testimonies. Well, actually, that's what it means to honor someone, to speak of them in such a way that they become larger. When you honor someone, that's what you're doing. And in honoring Christ, we want to make Christ look larger, not because we're trying to make Him look bigger than He is or trying to exaggerate Him in any way, but through our words, through our actions, our goal is to take the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ who seems, doesn't he, very small and insignificant in the world in which we live? Wouldn't you say the world sees Jesus as very small and insignificant? But that our lives would make him look more like he actually is. Glorious, awe-inspiring, worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of our obedience, worthy of every breath that we breathe, that our lives and our words would portray the Lord Jesus Christ in that way. The way a telescope takes a star that to the naked eye looks very small and insignificant and makes it look more like it actually is large and glorious. And this type of honoring is the goal of the Christian, whether we are at work, whether we're on vacation, whether we're at home, 
whether we're with friends, whether we're dating, whether we're at school, whether we're in the doctor's office, in the hospital bed, at the gym, on the golf course, on the basketball court, in a restaurant, in living rooms, in public, in private, online, offline, there is no circumstance in which the goal of the Christian changes. The goal of every single one of us, if you are Christians, is to honor Christ, to live a life that displays how great He really is. How good He really is. It's the one goal, as if it were, that overrides and dominates all the other goals. As John the Baptist said, He must increase. He must increase. Through the life of John the Baptist, He must increase. As Paul would write elsewhere, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. You see, in the Scripture, when people get a vision of the glory of Jesus, they fall on their faces, and our lives should demonstrate that He is worthy of that kind of reverence. Now, we may have other goals in life, but but friends, every other goal bows down to this one goal. There may be no better example of this than the Apostle Paul himself. Honoring Christ, bringing His greatness, His majesty, His awesomeness into focus for the lost world and for the church through His life and ministry is His highest goal. And following His lead, we're going to look at His words and see that honoring Christ is the Christian's highest goal. That's what I hope we all walk out of here convinced of. That whatever goal you think ought to take priority in your life, that as you leave this place today, as you stand up and you walk around and you begin to have conversations with one another, that you understand and you're convinced and you're convicted and you're going to live according to the fact that honoring Jesus Christ is the highest goal of my life. That's the highest goal. So we see that in these words. First, we see that Paul honors Christ in uncertainty. Paul honors Christ in uncertainty. In the last phrase of verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. Now, this phrase is like a hinge that connects the text we looked at last week to this one. And going on from there, having said that in the future, no matter what happens, Paul will rejoice, he tells us why. The reason is this will turn out for my deliverance. Look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, we'll come back to the prayers and the Spirit in just a bit, but the flow of thought is, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. But what is this? That'd be good to know, wouldn't it? What is the this that's going to end up in deliverance? Well, the this is everything he's talked about prior to this. The this goes back to that long list of suffering and trials that we laid out last week. What he sums up in verse 12 as, what has happened to me? The this also includes these men who are preaching Christ, but they're doing it with ill motive, wanting to hurt Paul, wanting to uh, diminish his influence and his ministry, to stir up trouble for him. This, Paul says, will turn out. For my deliverance. 
It will turn out for my salvation. It will turn out for my victory. Now, what is this deliverance? If you recall, Paul is sitting in a Roman prison chained to one of the imperial guard. Does Paul mean that he'll be released from prison? Or is he referring to final deliverance, the glories of heaven, the the victory of eternal life? And really, there, there is division on, on, on what exactly it means, but it, it could actually be both. If you read carefully and you keep going to the end of verse 20, you'll see that both seem to be in sight. He says that he'll have full courage now as always, and Christ will be honored, whether by life or by death. Deliverance will come either way. It's, 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 it's much like the way that we pray for healing. You ever prayed that someone would be healed? Now, we know that there is a healing that can happen in this temporal body, don't we? God is still in the healing business. He still does this. We have examples in our own congregation of those whose bodies have been healed by the Lord through medicine. A, 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 a pathway that looked certain to go to death was turned back by the Lord. And then there is the healing that is ultimate. The healing where no other ailment will touch that person again. There is healing and there is healing. And so when we pray for healing, we don't actually know which one is coming out, but we do know this. God heals. God restores. The same is true here. Later in verse 25, Paul is convinced, he's confident he'll live, but right here, for, for a very particular reason, to commu- he's communicating to the Philippians, he's saying, I'm not certain whether it's life or death, whichever one happens to come, whether, they, whether this trial before Caesar works out for my favor and I am released, or whether it goes against me and I am condemned to execution. No matter which one he comes, he is certain of this. Look at verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. The as it is my eager expectation uh, would be better translated according to, which means that The notion that he will be delivered is according to this eager expectation and hope, which is two ways of saying the same thing. He is really, really confident. Hope in the Bible is never a wish. Hope is the confident expectation of good that will come. And he has this eager expectation. He has this confident expectation that he will not be ashamed no matter what comes, that he will face it with full courage, whatever comes, that he will honor Jesus Christ. Whatever comes, whether by life or by death, if he's set free, he won't be ashamed. You know what he'll do? He'll go out with courage. He won't hide. He won't be embarrassed about his jail time. He won't stop preaching the gospel. Christ will be honored. And if he should face the executioner, he won't be ashamed. 
He'll die with courage. He'll honor Christ the same way that the apostles did. Do you remember what they said when they were beaten in Acts chapter 5? They went away, Acts 5 tells us, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy. These are people who are not ashamed to have been identified with Jesus and to have suffered for the sake of Jesus. Paul won't be ashamed. You see, shame comes from a life that doesn't honor Christ. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, the Bible says. Shame comes from a life that doesn't honor Christ, a death that doesn't honor Christ. That's why it's actually right for us to feel shame over our sin, because that sin dishonors Christ. And we are shamed by it. We should be shamed by it. It's when we're not shamed by it, by our own dishonoring of Christ, that things have really gone wrong in our lives. Whatever comes, Paul, Paul's certain of one thing in the midst of uncertainty. He'll live and he'll die honoring Christ. Don't we need that to be our goal today? Don't you need that to be your goal today? We may be uncertain about so many things, couldn't we? About our own health, about the health of those we love, about our finances, about our career, about the future of the little ones that we just prayed for. We're, there are uncertainties that will come along the way with those children. Uncertain about whether the desire to be married will ever be fulfilled. Uncertain about the effects of government decisions on religious freedom and church life. I'm sure you could add to this list. But uncertainties abound, don't they? They abound. And we may do what we can to promote the best outcome, right? So you choose to do things that would promote health in your own body or, or, or you work hard at your job or you teach your children the gospel or you speak up about crucial legislation, whatever it is. But in the end, we can't make certain everything about this life, right? If you can, please see me after the, after the service and tell me what it is that you're doing that makes everything so certain in your life. And then I will help you to see where you've gone wrong. <laughs> It'll be a lovely conversation. But we can say that. We can, the thing that we can do, we can't make everything certain about this life, but we can honor Christ in the midst of uncertainty. You may not be able to change your health or your job or your circumstance, but you can change. You can honor Jesus through all that may come, whether the circumstance gets better or gets worse. N listen to this. Nothing can keep you from honoring Jesus Christ. Nothing can do it. You can choose not to do it, but nothing outside of you can keep you from honoring Jesus Christ in the midst of all of life's uncertainties. It may feel more difficult in one circumstance than another, but nothing can stop you from doing it. 
And you can say, and I can say, that no matter what happens, we need not be ashamed or fearful because whatever it is, this will turn out for my deliverance. It may be here. It may be in the hereafter. But God will finally vindicate his people. That much we know. Well, now how can we do that? How, how can we know that? What is the pathway by which we can do that, that, that nothing can stop us from honoring Jesus Christ in the uncertainties of life? Well, go back to verse 19. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is how it's going to happen, by prayer and by the Holy Spirit. It's quite possible that the Philippian Christians were praying that Paul would receive the help of the Holy Spirit, that Paul would have this deliverance come. But just imagine this, friends. Here is the great apostle. Don't we put him up on a pedestal? Don't we say, just always look to the Apostle Paul. He's such a good example for us. And indeed, he is. But here he is, the one we associate with power, the one whose writings have been and still are so crucial for the church, the one on whom so many have depended in order to understand and follow Jesus. And here he is saying, you don't need to depend on me. I am depending on you. And I am depending on the Holy Spirit. The great apostle knows his great need for the prayers of others, for the help of the Spirit. It's the only way he'll have courage. It's the only way he'll be unashamed. It's the only way he'll honor Christ. Now consider that. Just keep that in your mind. And do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? At some point, you're going to open up your email if you're a member of this church, and the names of three to four people that you may or may not know are going to arrive, that we are asking every single person to pray for this week. Each Christian, each one of those people facing their own uncertainties, whether it's located in this week or just in life, and you know what they need? They need your prayers and they need the help of the Holy Spirit of God. Because it's through your prayers that that will happen. Not long ago, we were praying for an individual here in the church. And by God's sweet providence, I got a message from that person just this week saying this. I received a lot of prayers. And they are an incredible comfort. I was pretty scared and I believe the Holy Spirit was using them to comfort me. Now why would you give up on such an important ministry as that? Why would you say you need something else? How many times is it? I, I couldn't even begin to tell you how many times people will tell me when I visit them in a hospital, when I visit them in their homes, when I talk to them on the phone, when I counsel them about whatever it is they're walking through, and they say, I can just tell that people are praying for me. And it's the only way I'm walking through this with my eyes on Jesus. That's the only way I'm doing it. Oh, friends, we need one another. We live in very uncertain times. We have uncertain lives. But through prayers and through the help of the Holy Spirit, we, like Paul, can honor Christ in uncertainty. Secondly, Paul honors Christ in life. 
Now, most of you will know verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a famous verse. A simple search found Google images of it printed on pillows and on artwork and tattooed on people's bodies, all right? It's very famous, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But it's not a phrase that's meant to stand alone here like it does on the pillow or like it does on the arm in ink or like it does on the artwork that hangs on the wall. It's not a verse that stands alone. It explains something else. That first word in verse 21 is what? For. That means because. How strange it would be just to have a piece of artwork that just says because. We have to understand what this is. Paul has just said, Christ will be honored whether by my life or by my death for to me to live is Christ. So, this is what it means to honor Christ. For to me to live is Christ. So we'll start with the first half. Paul honors Christ in life. To live is Christ. The only way that Paul sees life is as it is lived for Christ. In fact, this is one of the chief reasons that Jesus died. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus did not die so that we would live for ourselves. He died, saved us, purchased us with His own blood that we might live for Him, for God. We belong to Him. We, know we are either, uh, according to Romans 6, we are either slaves to sin or we are slaves to God through righteousness, one or the other. We're not slaves to ourselves. Jesus died so that we would live for Him. So what, but what does that mean? I mean, what does it, to live as Christ, what does that look like? Does it mean that we retreat from society, we begin a monkish type experience, isolated, just, just me and my Bible, and I'm just meditating on Jesus, and I'm listening to my podcast, and it's, that's, that's me, just to me, to live as Christ. I'm just never leaving this room. I'm just going to soak it all up for the rest of my life. No, that is not what it means. To live as Christ is shorthand for Christ being honored in life. To do something. So for Paul, he says it means to serve others. Look at verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, there it is, to live, to live. That means fruitful labor for me. Paul, he's already said in verse 1, is a servant of Jesus Christ. And if he lives, he'll continue to serve, continue to work. He's not going to retire. He's not going to retreat. He's going to press on. He'll preach more sermons. He'll mentor more young men to go into the ministry. He'll write more letters to help more churches. Fruitful labor. And then he thinks of the Philippians in particular, these ones that he holds in his heart. Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Who will he live for? Not for himself. Paul's life is about others. It's not about him. He's so, think about this. He's so committed 
to living for the sake of others that this decision racks his brain. Look at verse 22, Yet the second half. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell, life or death, that is. I am hard-pressed between the two. Now, when he says choose, he doesn't mean that his end of life is in his hands. The word choose there means to which one I prefer. Which one do I prefer? Do I prefer to live? Do I prefer to die? I don't know. But think about this. He comes to the jaw-dropping conclusion that it is better for him to stay, that he will delay the relief of heaven and embrace the hardship of life for the sake of others. And this fruitful labor, this honoring Christ, look where it results, verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. He will honor Christ in his life. Why? So that Christ will be more honored by those that he serves. The glory of Jesus consumes Paul's thinking. Friends, that's what to live as Christ means. It means to live for Christ by living like Christ, to put aside your desires, your comfort, your relief, to die to yourself, to serve for the good of others and for the joy of others. Isn't this what our Lord Jesus did? Do you remember when he's in the garden? He asked his father multiple times to let the cup of suffering pass from him. But then he says, not my will, but yours be done. And the Father's will was that Jesus would drink the cup of suffering, that He would drink every drop, that He would drink it dry, absorb every bit of the terrible wrath of God on our behalf, for our sake. Jesus set aside His own will to do the Father's will and to serve us by giving His life as a ransom so that we could have a joy that can never be taken away. Joy in this life, as, as those forgiven of sin and joy in eternity, in heaven. The cup of God's wrath was drunk in full by, by Jesus Christ. You see, on the day when we stand before God, as it were, there will be one of two cups standing there waiting for us. You will either have to drink the cup of God's wrath for all eternity. Or if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him and find salvation in Him, you will find that cup is already empty and the only cup that remains is the cup of God's love and acceptance which you will drink forever and ever. That is what lies before you. You see, the problem of sin is not just that we hurt one another. The problem of sin is that it is primarily and ultimately against God. And God does not just simply brush it aside. He is holy. He cannot. But I wonder which cup, if you met him today, which cup would you have to drink from? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if so, that cup is empty. The only way to drink of the Father's love forever in Christ is to trust Him, to turn from your sin and to trust in Him.
And I would urge you to do it today. But this is what Jesus has done for us. He set aside his glories. Paul will go on to say he emptied himself. The, the hymn says it well, doesn't it? He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. This is our example as well. It's not only our salvation, it's our example. I wonder if you just think about this. How much of the, of, of the American church is marked by this kind of sacrifice? What would you think? How much of the American church is, is marked by putting aside our preferences for the sake of others, denying my comfort for your joy, dying to me so I can serve you? How much of American Christianity is marked by that attitude? Very little, I'm afraid. But beware as you consider that reality. Don't get caught shaking your head and wagging your finger at the American church. As if you're immune to the very same problem. Can you say, to live is Christ? Not as a motto, but as the way you genuinely seek to live. Do you sacrifice to serve? Do all of the other goals of life bow down to this one of honoring Christ? Or do you ask Jesus, as it were, to bow down to your goals, to your priorities, to your aims? Oh, we sang it this morning, didn't we? Love so amazing so divine, demands our soul, our life, our all. Paul will honor Christ in life. And finally, Paul will honor Christ in death. To live as Christ, to die as gain. You see, in the world today, people, some people think that to d- dying is gain because it is a simple ceasing to exist that we are just extinguished, and so the pain of this life is over and we go out of existence. For others, they say that dying is gain basically because they are universalists. Friends, in funeral homes all over the country today, there will be universalists standing next to coffins saying he, she is in a better place no matter what their thoughts of God or of Christ are. But the death that is gain, that is here in Philippians 1, is neither one of these. The gain isn't that this, end, that this life comes to an end. The gain is that eternity with Christ begins. Uninterrupted joy in Christ, we launch out into it. That, he says, is better. That's what he says at the end of verse 23. That is better. To to depart and be with Christ, that is better. That is more advantageous. To leave this world, to be with Christ. Paul believes that being with Jesus is better than all his sorrows, than any victory, than any comfort, more than all riches, better than freedom from prison. Jesus is better. And the desire to gain that which is better, to be with Jesus, honors Jesus. Let me explain. When I was a freshman in college, I needed money, as just about any freshman in college does. 
So I was working these piddly little jobs, and then one of my professors in the music department said, hey, the church that I go to needs some uh, singers on Sunday evenings uh, to sing in their paid choir. Whew, it's just like music to my ears. So I was like, a paid choir? I've never heard of this. I grew up in this Baptist church. You don't pay anybody to do anything in the, on the praise team. You're going to pay the choir. All right. So I start going to these things. But the deal was when you committed, you had to commit all the way through the Christmas Eve service, which was at midnight. Okay? So I was like, I don't care. All right. Now, I am six hours from home, and I make this commitment not realizing how disappointed, especially my mother will be, that this is going to be the first Christmas morning ever that I would not be there in the morning. So I tried to explain, I need the money, I'll be there as soon as I can, I'll get up early, I'll be there by lunch, but it's a paid choir. Well, the semester was over, I was staying with a friend in the few days between then and Christmas Eve. I go, I do the Christmas Eve service. It happened to be in an Episcopal church, by the way. So uh, I, I was like, oh, they're serving communion. I'll take communion. So I took communion with them. And I was like, who is in charge of the grape juice? This tastes awful. Something has gone wrong with this grape juice. <laughs> Only to find out later that it was actually wine. All right? So we get through the whole service. It's about 1 in the morning. And uh, I, I, I walk out of the service having done my duty. I get into the car, and as I sit in the car, I turn on the car, and some sappy, sentimental Christmas song is on, and essentially, I was like, what am I doing? I want to be home. So I went to my friend's house, I got my bag, and I started the trip from Memphis to Knoxville. Normally a six-hour trip, but I had to stop often and just run around that car in the cold to keep myself awake. So I'd run around the car, just like a one-person fire drill there, just round the car, round the car. And then I would get back in, and then I would keep driving. So what took six hours normally took seven. Now, when I go home, I never knock on the door, but I thought I would knock on the door. So I knocked on the door that Christmas, eat, that Christmas morning. It's about 8 a.m., and my mom answers the door. And she immediately bursts into tears, as moms do. Why? You see, my desire was to depart and to be with my family. And that desire to depart and be with them demonstrated the place of honor that they have in my life, the value that I place on them. And so it is with Paul. His desire is to go home, to be with Christ. Not simply to get away from this sin-cursed life, but to get to his blessed Savior. Christ holds that place of honor in Paul's heart. Jesus is better than life itself, so death is gain. I wonder, does the Lord Jesus hold that place of honor in your heart? Do you think of death as gain? Now that's hard for some because there are a great many, there are great many blessings in this life. I mean, time with our, 
our spouse or enjoying our children, enjoying our grandchildren, the blessing of friendship. All these gifts are from God. But let me ask you a question. Would you rather have your husband or wife or all of the gifts that they gave you along the way? Would you rather have your mom or your dad or all of the gifts that they gave you along the way? For those of you who have lost a parent or a spouse, you don't even have to think about it, do you? I'd rather have them than everything they could ever give me. And that's what Paul's saying when he says to die is gain. Of all the blessings that Jesus Christ could give me in this life, of all the temporal things he could add to my life, the thing I want most is him. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Honor Christ in uncertainty, friends. Honor Christ in life. And you will come to honor Christ in death. It is our highest goal. In the lives that we lead as we set our goals in many different areas, don't ever lose sight of this goal. Don't lose sight of the goal of honoring Jesus Christ because if you reach all the other goals and you don't reach this one, you'll be ashamed. But if you reach this one and you fail at all the other goals you set for your life, you'll stand before God unashamed. Let's pray together. Our Father, how worthy you are of honor and glory and power and strength. You are worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of honor and glory, worthy of all the gifts we could bring, worthy of all the songs we can sing. You are worthy. Father, would you give us help by the Spirit of Jesus Christ that whether by life or by death, no matter what our circumstances are, That it would be our eager expectation to not be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, to honor Christ. That whether we are at home or away from this body, that we make it our aim to please Him. We do that, we would want to do that so that you grow larger and larger in our vision, that we get our minds more and more around how glorious and wonderful and awesome you are. And we want to honor Christ so that the community around us, so that the family that is near us, the friends that are near us, the strangers you bring into our lives would see this Jesus is not one that you can dismiss. He is glorious. He is the only Savior of the world. Help us to honor him in that way. 
And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all through the events of this day and in the days to come and forevermore. For Christ's sake and in his name, amen.